Scripture lesson this morning comes from Genesis 2 and 3. I'm starting a new sermon series this morning, so I'm going to start at the beginning with the creation story. There are actually two creation stories in the book of Genesis. The one I'll read is from Genesis 2. It's the second creation story, but it's actually the older of the two creation stories. It comes from a thousand years before Jesus. This is Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called those animals, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle of the field and the birds of the air. But for the man there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the story continues in Genesis 3, which is part of this same story. Now the serpent was craftier than any animal that God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden, except for the one in the middle of the garden. God says that if we touch it, we will die. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't die, for God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eye and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and partook of it and also gave some for her husband. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1892, a young man named Charles Bazell was standing on the deck of a ship called the Almonte at a dock in New Orleans. He wasn't a sailor, he was actually a spectator, watching the crew load the hole with cotton bales. And he got tired and sat down on one of the cotton bales in the hold and promptly fell asleep and failed to wake up when they battened down the hatches and set sail for New York. No one heard his cries for help, and nine days later, when they, nine days, when they arrived in New York to unload those cotton bales, there was Charles lying still on a cotton bale in the hold. They thought he was dead, but in fact, he was just unconscious, so the crew rushed him over to St. Vincent's Hospital in Greenwich Village. As far as the crew knew, nine days was the longest time any individual had gone without food and water. Well, the skilled practitioners at St. Vincent's revived Charles and nursed him back to health, and he was just fine. About the same time, Charles' sister gave birth to a baby girl, and her parents called her Edna, but they gave her the strangest middle name, St. Vincent to honor the nurses and the doctors at the hospital who'd saved her uncle. And so that's how the great American poet Edna St. Vincent 
Millay got her eccentric name. Now, fellow poets speculate that if the crew had brought Charles to, let's say, Lenox Hill Hospital or New York Presbyterian, they'd never given her that sobriquet. It doesn't scan. So, you can learn a lot from a person from her name. When we came into this world, our parents chose a unique name for us with vast love and high expectation and meticulous thought. So that, for example, if your name is Peter, it's because you made your parents think of or hope for the sturdiness of a rock. And if your name is Diane or Diana, it's because you made your parents think of or hope for a goddess. And if your name is James or Jacob, it's because you made your parents think of or hope for a trickster or a stand-up comic. They could have named you Coyote or Raven because you made them think of Jerry Seinfeld. And so this Princeton Seminary professor says that to give somebody a name is to honor them and to respect them and to give them great love. And she points to this story that I just read from Genesis 2 about the creation of the world. Did you notice in this first, the second story of creation that I just read what the first man's first job is? The first man's first job is to name the animals, all the animals. And so the oldest profession is not what you think it is. The oldest profession is taxonomist. And so this Princeton professor talks about the great glee that God experiences when God parades past all the animals past Adam, the first man to see what he will call them. And so God places an animal before the first man, and the first man says, hedgehog, and God smiles. And then God brings a second animal and places it before the first man, and the first man says, bulldog, and God is triumphant. And then God brings a third animal before the first man, and the first man says, horned frog, and God is embarrassed. So I'm going to start this sermon series where I want to pay modest tribute to some of the characters in the Bible who are very important to the story, but who don't get a name. They are the unnamed. They're not nameless. They all have a name. We just don't know what it is. So there are scores of them in the Bible, that sprawling story from Genesis to Revelation. Maybe there are hundreds. I want to pay tribute to just a few. In fact, the first three characters we meet in the biblical story don't get names. They are the unnamed. We typically call the first man by the name Adam, as if it were a proper name. But at the beginning, that's not the case. Adam became a proper name only later in the tradition. At the beginning, the Hebrew Bible calls the first man Adam, which comes from Adama, which is Hebrew for ground or earth, because the first man is made of dust. God bends down and takes a handful of dust and sculpts it into a living being like a potter at her clay. The first man is Adam, dust. He's a groundling. He's an earthling. And in the same way, we typically call the first woman by the name Eve, as if that were a proper name. But in Hebrew, Eve just means mother because she is the mother of all humanity. Eve only becomes a proper name in the later tradition. So the first two characters we meet in the Bible are without names. 
or at least we don't know what they are. They are groundling and mother. The third prominent character we meet in Scripture doesn't get a name. The serpent. Later tradition will guess that it was Satan who prompted the snake to swindle the first man and the first woman. But the story doesn't tell us that. The story just says it was a snake. And some say this story is the reason why many, many people have this overwhelming, paralyzing, irrational fear of snakes. But here's the thing. Here's why I want to talk to you about this this morning. I want to ask you a question that arises from the story that's relevant to this holiday weekend. What's the original sin? That is to say, what's the sin that lies at the beginning, at the source, at the origin, at the beginning of most of what's wrong with humanity? We have to listen to the story. The story says that the snake swindled the first man and the first woman by convincing them that if they taste of the forbidden fruit, they won't die. In fact, quite the opposite. They'll get better. If they taste the forbidden fruit, they will become like God. So much more than they otherwise would be. She will become a goddess, says the snake. She will be so much more than all of the other creatures of the earth who are formulated from dust. And so that's the error that lies at the beginning, at the source, at the origin. That's the original sin. How does that manifest in America today? Today, well, by white superiority, right? That's what's at the beginning of most of what troubles us. It has haunted us for 400 years. From slavery itself to the Civil War to Jim Crow to the vile malice that people speak even today. I've been reading Toni Morrison's masterpiece, Beloved. And you know, you have your own opinion, but this rereading has convinced me that she belongs in the pantheon of American giants with Twain and Dickinson and Melville, Wharton, Hemingway, Fitzgerald. Anyway, Toni Morrison was educated in Lorraine, Ohio, less than a mile from the shore of Lake Erie. She was the only American in her first grade classroom, but she was not the only minority. She was surrounded by immigrants from every part of the world. And these white immigrants had almost nothing in common. Two things in common. They lived in America just now, and they weren't black. Those were the two things they had in common. They didn't share a language. They didn't share a culture. They didn't share habits. They shared one thing. They weren't black. They all stood together and said, at least I'm not that. And Tony remembers that she had a white immigrant cl classmate who sat next to her in her fifth grade classroom. He was very bright, but he knew no English, and so Tony helped him with his reading. And she says, I still remember the exact moment when he found out that I was black. And then she utters a, an obscenity that I can't repeat in this room. I still remember the exact moment when he found out I was black. He was told. It took him six months to figure it out. And that was the moment he belonged to the club. That was his entrance. He was different from me. Do you remember that scene from the 1988 movie Mississippi Burning where the Francis McDormand character says to Gene Hackman, Hatred isn't something you're born with. 
It gets taught. At the age of seven, you get told something enough times, you start to believe it. You believe the hatred. You live it. You breathe it. You marry it. Yes? So that's what happens when we buckle under the serpent's fake news about our own supposed vainglory, about our own supposed God-likeness. We're better than everybody else. We're not made of dust. We're gods and goddesses. But the groundling mother snake saga is just the beginning of God's story with God's people. That story reaches its apex at Calvary when we find out that our own unseemly enmities and fraudulent superiority are all doomed. They can't last. Even at the beginning of the story, God says you may, to the serpent, God says, you may fang his heel, but he will crush your head. All that false supremacy, all that unworthy animosity, it's doomed. It's gone. It's dying. It's withering away. Christ died. Christ rose. Christ lives. Christ reigns for all of us. We're all the same. And so our destiny is that ancient, imperishable dream that one day, Freedom shall ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire and the mighty mountains of New York. Freedom shall ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania and the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Freedom shall ring from the curvaceous slopes of California and from Lookout Mountain in Tennessee and Stone Mountain in Georgia and from every hill and molehill in Mississippi. Freedom shall ring. And when that day comes, all people will join together and say, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. That is our hope. That's our dream. That's our goal. And that is, in fact, our inevitable destiny. So we might as well get started right now.